Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I sat down and talked to Ryan Singer. Ryan's the head of strategy at Basecamp and a really compelling and passionate product guy. With Ryan, we talked about a lot of great ideas, a lot of things I found intriguing. One idea we talked about in particular is talking about all the decisions we make when building a product, how we land on the decisions we do make, and how those decisions form a path-dependent process. So what do I mean by that? By that I mean what we decide at step one limits what we can decide at step two and so on. And all this got me to thinking, do our own experiences and biases work against us when we're building products? I mean, we often start down a path based upon our experiences and our own learned biases, right? We often start with constraints, what we know how to build or what's convenient. It's rare we truly start from a blank slate. And I, I think what's powerful about Ryan and the team at Basecamp is how they approach thinking about problems, how they think about answering the whens and focusing on leading with design and getting to outcomes customers desire. Well, enough for me. Let's kick this off and afterwards tweet at me at eboduck or shoot me a note at eboduck at pendo.io and tell me what you think. Welcome, Welvers of Product. I am here today with Ryan Singer from Basecamp. Ryan, why don't we start by you giving us a little overview of your background. Yeah, well, let's see. So I started off doing user interface design. I started by learning web design kind of in the early web days in the 90s. And I was always more interested in stuff that was functional than stuff that was graphic. So some people were making stuff that was like a fancy print design, you know, but just on a web page. And I got really interested in kind of the buttons and fields and making stuff work. And I started working with Basecamp at the time was called 37 Signals. And it was just three of us, me and Jason, and he had an employee, Matt, at the time. And so we were working together doing website designs. Jason had the idea for Basecamp. And I was working on interface design for Basecamp. And David came in to do the programming. And he invented Rails to do the programming. And I found that I could start to kind of actually touch the programming myself, even though I was a designer, because otherwise I would have to give something to David, explain it to him, wait for him to hook it up. And then if I wanted it to get changed, I'd have to go talk to him again. You know, this like long cycle. Yeah. So this was kind of my first exposure to having a foot on in both camps, like the design side and the development side, which for me was a really good kind of a basis for product because I understood kind of the bigger picture of like how to build something. You know, what does it need to be from the design point of view? And then how do we actually hook it up from the programming side? So Rails made that a lot easier. So I started kind of doing both programming and design for a while. But then like the next question appeared, which is like, what's the right thing to build? <laughs> you know, and are we building the, are we, is it not only like, how do I get the button to actually click when I click it? But like, is it, should the button even be there? Right. So then I got more interested in kind of the business and strategy side what do customers actually care about, what's worth building, what's meaningful in the product. And then that kind of got me into the direction of, I guess, what we'd call product management, sort of. <laughs> and then there's also this whole other parallel track. It's always confusing when we talk about product because in theory, product is a strategic role of like, what should the product be and what should it do? But in practice, product is often project management, you know? Much All too to, often. Much to everybody's chagrin. You know? Yes. So I also did a lot of work, you know, for the first time, I think it was 2009, maybe, we did this massive overhaul of our login system. Like we had multiple products and we were connecting them all together with a single sign-on kind of a thing. It was a big gnarly project. And that was the first time that I kind of started to do more of the, I wouldn't really call it project management. I think of it more as designing the work. Like how do we break apart the work? How do we prioritize the work? How do we scope it? How do we sequence it in order to get the right things done in the right way and learn the right things at the right time? So as an outgrowth of that, also did a lot of work kind of figuring out what is our design development process? How do we think about requirements? How do we adjust scope toward a deadline? Stuff like that. So I kind of have a bit of experience on all sides by this point. You know, I've been at Basecamp for 15 years now. And now my role is mainly... I'm kind of doing like R&D 
from a strategy point of view. So on one side, I'm doing a lot of qualitative research with customers, figuring out what's important. And then I'm also doing design concepts for here's an idea for something that's going to make things better for customers, or here's something that Basecamp should do, or here's something it should do differently. Awesome. So talk to me a little bit about that transition from design to technical to management to strategy. Talk about that experience and maybe some of the challenges you had going through there. Yeah, I mean, there's challenges at every step, right? And different ones. So (laughs) I could never, honestly, like I could never really program. I always wanted to since I was a kid. I like played with basic on an Apple II and stuff like that. But but doing real programming was always somehow there was all this stupid stuff I had to do that I couldn't connect it to my problem. You know, like, and then when I saw Rails, it was the first time that the programming language only seemed to include stuff that was meaningful. Like, I looked at the code and it actually said, like, register the customer, you know, like, add the payment. It didn't just have a whole bunch of gobbledygook. So for me, uh, actually working in Rails, like, lowered the barrier to tech. And I, I had a lot of learning at that time. And I was really lucky because we've got, like, amazing programmers here at Basecamp. And... We actually have kind of a shared cultural background. There's different schools of programming and there's different languages and they all kind of trace back to different communities of people with different opinions. And a lot of what we do traces back to the small talk school, people like Kent Beck and Martin Fowler and stuff like that. And there's a lot of really clear thinking about how to program and how to be clear about what you're doing and how to make the program readable so that it's not just a bunch of gobbledygook. So that that was a huge learning experience for me to sort of see that from the software side. On the design side, a lot of designers, you know, we talk about being creative and stuff like that. And it's kind of like, I think sometimes when we talk about creativity, it's a cover for the fact that we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> like, we know that we'll come up with something and people are going to like it, but it's kind of like a hope and pray. And then at some point you get the aha and then you get something and people smile at it. But we don't have a reputation for being really clear and analytical about why it's the right choice today, right? Whatever we're doing in a design. So I found that programming stuff was really helpful. And then as I got into the more into the strategic side, it was a big challenge to like, well, I don't, how do I think about this? How do I think about like what's valuable to a customer, right? And I found actually um, Clayton Christensen's work really helpful. Yeah. Especially his second book after after Innovator's Dilemma, he wrote one called Innovator's Solution, and it's kind of like a little toolbox of how to think about business problems. It's awesome. It's like a little micro MBA, and it's like just the parts that matter and not the BS parts. And for me that was huge. That was really helpful. I, I still think about for example, there's a section in there about what he calls the law of conservation of attractive profits, which is not the it's not a likely to spread name. <laughs> There's a few syllables no, in that a, one. No, it's a mouthful. <laughs> but the basic idea is that, you know, there's always parts of a thing that we create as a product that are commodity. You know, like it, we, we might have to have a login for a software as a service product, right? You have to have yep. authentication. But your authentication is not the thing that makes you different, right? You, you're identifying sort of the part of the problem where you have to do something custom, And then the other parts where you can use off-the-shelf stuff. And it's a little bit of like, he's coming at it almost from like a supply chain point of view. But when you read it through the lens of software, you start to see see things in a fresh way. So um, what I've been trying to do throughout the whole process is sort of pull in information from fields that have the thing that I need, you know. So from the programming, pulling in from the programmers, that actually helped to clarify the design process because I could use programming techniques to like structure the design problem, then pulling in a little bit of the Clay Christensen stuff to get some business ideas. And then a huge challenge was actually after the product was live and healthy for a while, we reached a point where so many people were using Basecamp that we couldn't recognize them. Like we didn't see ourselves and our customers anymore. We started off as like a little, you know, consultancy and we used Basecamp ourselves to manage the back and forth with clients. And Suddenly, churches were using it, lawyers were using it, people in big corporations were using it. It's like, well, what are they doing with Basecamp? What are they, how do we know how to change the product so that it's either going to make everybody happy or not make the wrong people unhappy? What do we do, right? I felt like totally in the dark. And that's where I, I connected with Bob Mesta, 
he was one of the creators of this framework called Jobs to Be Done, and he's amazing. And I learned from him an interview technique that's closer to a criminal interrogation, actually. You talk to customers about what happened before they bought. So what was actually going on that led them to make the purchase? And you only talk to customers who bought. And then you get all these stories about what's actually going on in people's lives where something isn't okay anymore and they see Basecamp as the thing that's going to put them back on the right track, right? And by doing that, I, I, that was a few years of learning how to do that. And that gave us a huge amount of clarity for sort of what's important in the product, who the customer is, why Basecamp is the way it is, who it competes with and who it doesn't compete with. Actually, at the end of that project, we ended up tripling our prices and changing the onboarding experience and everything. And that worked out really well for us. So at different stages, it's been different problems and trying to pull in different influences. Awesome. It's, it's funny you mentioned Bob. I was, I was so waiting in the lobby. I, I had a phone call from Bob. We're oh, really? Later today. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Such a small world. You yeah. Know? He's great. He is great. We were out at I was out at industry in Europe. Huh. In fact, I, I think I saw you there. Yeah, yeah, in Dublin. Yeah, yeah in Dublin. Uh, and I uh, had a long conversation with Bob at one of the after parties. Loved him. Great yeah, guy. So yeah. Had a, had I've, a learned, lot to say. I've learned a ton from him over the last, maybe, I don't know, six years now. Yeah, yeah. So haven't known him as long. Met him for the first time out in Dublin. But uh, Yeah, cool. Super excited about talking with him again. So let's talk on the design side. Like You write about you know design inter- intersecting with strategy and management. Talk to me a little bit about what you think there how that is, why it is. So we have the luxury here at Basecamp of having a founder who's a designer. And I think that that is, has put us in a really great position and it's made my life. I mean, like that's a huge part probably of why I've been able to stay for 15 years is everything that we do here starts from, it's kind of a cliche, you know, like people talk about start from the customer experience and work backward, right? People say that, but how many people actually do it is the thing. So very often what I see when I talk to other people who work on a product is they have somebody in a stakeholder position who had an idea but isn't a designer or who was a technical person, you know, who built V1. And then they, as they grow, they kind of bring on a lot of programmers and engineers or whatever. And it turns out that the engineering is kind of the center of power in the organization. And stuff tends to go downhill or downstream from engineering to design. You know, like we figured out how to build it. We built it now. Go make it look pretty. Make it look pretty or or sell it or make it sound good or explain it or whatever, right? And and here we're we're the opposite. Everything starts with what do we actually want to make and how is that going to work for the customer? So everything that we do starts with the interface concept first and we always go backward from the interface. So so here, like design is the beginning of everything. And every time I see a company that's the other way, it's, it's just like backwards, you know, because you're, you, there's so many, the, the search space, you know, one, one of my biggest influences in terms of how to think about design was is Christopher Alexander. I love his work. I've read everything he's ever done five times. His first book is called Notes on the Synthesis of Form. And it opens with him talking about how If you really think about all the choices you make when you do a design, there's like a million, billion, trillion decisions to make. You know what I mean? Like everything could be so many different ways. So how do we actually land on the decisions that we make, right? And and because it's it's a path-dependent process, you know, step one limits what you do in step two, which limits step three. The things that you decide early have a huge impact on where you end up. So if you start off with kind of what you know how to code, or you start off with what's convenient to build, that's going to take you to a very different place than if you start off with what's important in the user experience or the thing that needs to happen for the customer. So uh, that's, I don't even remember where we started because this filled my head with so many things. But, uh, <laughs> we were talking about design intersecting <laughs> with strategy and management. Yeah. But it, it led Did, to I this think... concept of like, you guys are known for designing simple human products, right? And yeah. your philosophy around that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what is simplicity? I mean, simplicity is knowing what matters, right? So we're starting with what matters. And we're, we want to have, we're really, really big on problem definition, we're not going to work on something unless we have a really clear sense of like, why are we doing this? Why is it worthwhile? What's going to be better after we're done? 
And how does the new better after compare to the status quo before? Yeah, I, I can think about personal experience there where customers come to you and they say, or salespeople come to you, or someone comes to you and says, I need X. Yeah. And X is a feature. Exactly. Right? And then you're thinking, well, great, I can build X, and I think I understand what X is, but why do they want X? And asking that question of why, yep. which a lot of people don't have the answer to, and then need to go back and yes. be like, what are you trying to accomplish? Right. What, and use some of Bob's terms, what jobs are you trying to get done? The real critical shift there is to shift from asking why to asking when. Ah. Because the thing is that if you ask, when, you, when we talk about why, we tend to give global answers because it's faster, because it's more useful or whatever, because I like it better, right? But the thing is that if something was actually always better, if faster was always better, then they would have asked us for it a year ago instead of today. Why did they ask us today to build a calendar into Basecamp, right? The support request comes in, build a calendar. So it's, what I'm wondering is what happened? You know, when do you think I need a calendar? And then when you ask when, what you get is instead of a rationale, you get a chain of events, which is totally different, right? Yeah, the chain yeah. of events is we've got a calendar painted on a wall at the office, right? We've got like a chalkboard paint on the wall, right? And we drew a giant calendar on there. And we've got a handful of, of meeting rooms that we each reserve when we want to see a client, okay? And when we book a client, we write our name in that spot on the calendar on the wall. And the client called me and I was at home and I couldn't tell them if I could see them or not. So I had to drive a half hour through traffic to get to the office to look at the wall. And then I got there and there wasn't even a spot. Ah, there's got to be a way. Like, we're using Basecamp already. I don't have to go to the office to ask somebody a question about a task, right? But there's got to be a way that I could know if that room is available or not from home as well. So can you please build a calendar, right? So then now, now we have some context because the thing is, back to the Christopher Alexander thing, the space of possibilities for a calendar, how many things could a calendar do? I mean, think about a full-featured calendar. You've got like down-to-the-minute meeting scheduling with multiple parties, and it's like they, they can RSVP or they, you know, they can respond yes, no, maybe. I mean, it's Yeah, it could huge, be very robust, very big. It could integrate with Outlook and with Google Calendar. Like there's so many things, right? Do I need to support dragging the edges of an appointment from 9.30 to 9.15 a.m.? You know, like that is a high fidelity user interface interaction. So a calendar could be a three-year engineering project. And we're thinking, man, there's no way we're going to build a calendar, right? Because we're thinking of all this functionality that people expect. But then what happens is when we ask when and we get the chain of events, what we heard was actually, look, I need to be able to see empty spaces so that I can book something or allocate a resource, right? Or schedule a designer. We kept hearing that over and over again. And at the time, Basecamp had a scheduling feature, actually, but it was a, it was a flat agenda list. And the thing was that we left out empty days. <laughs> so all you saw was like a list of events, you know, with the day on the left-hand side or whatever, yep. but you couldn't see the days that had nothing on them. You know, you, you couldn't see that. So we said, well, what, what's an interface concept that would enable people to see empty slots? but wouldn't have any of the other baggage of a calendar. And we ended up with this design that we called the dot grid, which is kind of like if you open up a calendar app on your phone and you see that month view and there's little dots in the cells, you know, we said, you know what? We think that's actually enough. If we just stop there, we ended up designing a six-week project. In six weeks, we shipped a quote-unquote calendar. <laughs> and customers started writing us and saying, thank you so much for building a calendar into Basecamp, right? So that's an example. What is simplicity? Right. Simplicity is getting so clear about the requirements that the thing that you build does just the right things. Right. And then you don't have a lot of complexity that's not valuable. Yeah. And I think that last point is one that can't be under acknowledged. And that's complexity. Right. If you had gone through it and say you had a ton of resources and said, we're going to build this full featured calendar and you built that, it would have probably solved their problems. But it added this huge level of complexity to the product that you didn't need because you went back and, and asked when or went through the cycle yes. of when. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. So you talked about some of your influences, right? We talked about Beck and others. Share who's influenced you and how they've influenced you and what you're doing in product strategy. Oh, geez. 
So, I mean, first influences are Jason and David here at Basecamp. You know, Jason Fried, the the founder, and David Heinmeier Hansen, who created Rails, and he leads everything technical here. Jason has a really strong gut sensibility for product, you know. And I remember first doing interface concepts and getting, getting his feedback when we were doing consulting in the early days. And he would always kind of insist that things shouldn't be equal. That's if, if there was a list of five links, he'd be like, which of those links is the important one? And then we'd make the three of them bigger. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that always re-weighting everything on the screen so that it wasn't a whole bunch of equal stuff. And then David brought in all the the best of the best practices, I would say, of software development in terms of splitting things into different responsibilities and all of the practices that come from like Kent Beck and others, like we mentioned. Christopher Alexander, huge influence because his whole thing was, so the way that a lot of architects work is they draw a blueprint and then you build the drawing, right? So he does it the other way. He builds the building and then he draws a blueprint to get permits. <laughs> so, but the thing is you can't build, you can't necessarily pour the concrete, but you can go on the site and you can stand up cardboard. Mm-hmm. So Christopher Alexander would go onto the site and then he would move giant pieces of cardboard around and cut out a window to figure out where the window should be based on where the best view was, which is information that you can't possibly get on a, by looking at a piece of paper, right? But if you're there on the site, so he would uh, always kind of build with mock-ups and then document what they figured out by experimenting. And that's how they would build. And that's been a huge thing for our process. We've always started by, we don't believe in mock-ups. We use them as little as we possibly can. It's like, let's stand something up in a rough interface. Let's get something coded together. Let's try and click through it. And then, okay, is this convincing? Yeah, okay, no, we need to move this here. No, that's not going to be clear. Okay, and we get like the, the core copywriting, the core affordances, the core like wiring and, 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 and movement between steps. And then we've got a concept and then we're going to go build that. So this whole like being real and building the whole thing every step of the way, you know, was a huge thing for us. Man, I could go on and on. Like Eric Evans, domain-driven design, huge influence. This is, he's amazing. So... He, he's a hardcore, like, full-on, this is like a full-on, like, nerd software development book. Like, you, it's for programmers, <laughs> and it's for, like, designing big systems and stuff. But his whole thing is that you need to actually get to a point where you have a clear model of the problem. So it's like if we're modeling a shipping service, are we modeling the endpoints, like the destinations, or do we model the legs? Because an endpoint is just like a, a pin on a map, but a leg has a start pin and an end pin. And like the whole data is different if you do it like, you know, like this, these little things, but coming up with the language for the problem so that you actually sit with the customer and you can speak what he calls the ubiquitous language. But it's like you, you figure out how to talk about all the little details of their business and the problem. And then you put that exact language into the app. So it's like weaving your model of the problem into the software. So, I mean, there's so many good things there. And like I said, Clay Christensen, very helpful. Bob Mesta's stuff, Tufty was a huge influence in the beginning. Because if you're trying to get into clear user interface design, who do you look up to as your designer that you're going to emulate, you know? And Tufty... He wrote this famous book, you know, The Visual Display of Quantitative Information, which is all about like making charts and graphs, basically. But the thing that's unique about him was he said the purpose of the display of the design is to enable people to do cognitive tasks. So it's like they need to make comparisons. They need to see to make judgments about cause and effect. Right. If you're looking at some medical chart, you're trying to see something or learn something or solve something. So he would go through and say, these are the mental tasks that people are trying to perform. How can I change the design so that it's easier to make comparisons? Or it's, you know what I mean? And then then he would use like visual weight and color and everything to enable that. So there was a functional dimension to what used to be thought of as artistic choices, you know, like color and font, right? And so that like, man, like... There's so many, so many good things. <laughs> you're, you're super, super excited and super passionate about that, right? You're, 
you seem to be a, a huge consumer of content information oh, man. Yeah. expertise. Well, because, you know, where do you learn this stuff? It's like, for me, it's just been such a joy to try and piece together some understanding of the whole thing, you know, because there's no school of product design that I know of that's any good. You know, all the great people who've done great stuff, and this is true for software and for interfaces, it's the people who've done the trial and error and worked it out. You know, I mean, in the software, you do have the Kent Becks and the Martin Fowlers who do an amazing job and the Eric Evans type who can really spell out how to do it. But from a product perspective, from a design perspective, there's no go-to, there's no Bible of interface design that you can actually apply, you know? So for me, like trying to piece together some kind of a repeatable understanding or framework has been kind of a lifelong, you know, passion or something like that. Should there be one? Should there be a Bible? Well, I, that would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Who can we get to put that together? <laughs> Let's see what we can do. <laughs> so uh, taking this in a slightly different direction, you talk a lot too about, you know, and, and written about positioning, right? And yeah. I think you compare it to restaurants, location, location, location. Yeah, exactly. You know, talk to me about your philosophy, your thoughts on positioning as it as it applies to products? Well, you know, the I think the place where it comes up, when, when we were first working on Basecamp in 2003, we didn't need to think about positioning because Jason had a really clear idea about what we were doing. It was his idea. He was living it as like the guy who owned this consultancy. And it's like, man, email is not working for this back and forth with the client. What if we did a, like basically a password protected blog instead and then we could all we could post the work as a post and then we could all comment like, like an old-time blog we post in comments it's like, it doesn't exist anymore you know but rarely <laughs> but like what if basically we could create a private blog for a project and we would post work and the client and, and we would comment back and forth on it, and it all have a password around it man that would be so much better because they would all be in one place and we wouldn't have this game of telephone of like what did the client say to the newest revision that that somebody else designed, you know? And when you're, I think a lot of new products start like that, where you know what you're trying to do, and then it works or it doesn't, you know? And then we got lucky and it worked and it took off. But then as time goes by, and I think this is where a lot of maybe product people, you know, you don't really have a product role until a, a thing's already taken off, you know? And now you have the problem of how to steer the thing. So, what should we add? What should we take away if we do a new version or an alternate version? What should we focus on, right? And if you don't know your quote-unquote location in, now we're being, one of my, I first read this book by Stuart Kaufman when I was a teenager called Origins of Order, and he introduced this scientific concept called a phase space. It like blew my mind. And it's something you only learn if you go into like the kind of hardcore sciences, you know, but the notion is like, you can take any set of variables and then you can like think of it as like a map with different points in it. You can say, where am I as a combination of variables, right? So I want to take, I'm doing this kind of same thing where I'm thinking about if we think about what the product does and what it could do and what other products do and what they can do and where are we in this space of possibilities, right? And where do we not want to be and where do we want to be? If we're not clear about our location in this kind of competitive space or this design space, then what's going to happen is we're going to wander around, right? We're going to build to the loudest voice or we're going to build to our deepest fear. So every time we think, oh crap, if I leave this out, somebody's going to complain, which is usually the programmer's point of view, right? Mm -hmm. they, they look for programmers like consistency, and completeness. <laughs> so it's always like every case needs to be covered, right? And, Get those uh, pesky end cases. Yeah, uh-huh, right? And the designers are always aiming at some kind of an ideal state. <laughs> the, the, the beautiful pinnacle. It's got one button. <laughs> it's got one button and it's the most beautiful button you've ever seen, right? So the, for the programmers, the problem is where do I stop, right? And because the scope is always increasing. So where do I draw my boundary? And for the designers, the problem is where do I center myself? What's the focal point, right? What's most important? So we need to have a sense of kind of what are we good at and intentionally what are we not good at? 
what situation do we want to solve and what situation do we not want to solve, right? So that we can make decisions. So like with Basecamp, people store documents on Basecamp. People collaborate on shared documents on Basecamp. So should we build a collaborative live document editor that's kind of has feature parity with Google Docs? People share documents on Basecamp and collaborate on documents on Basecamp. Should we build a native OS integration like Dropbox so that they don't have to upload it to Basecamp and download it again to make a change? Big engineering projects, big expense. Should we do that or not, right? So we need to have an understanding of what are people reaching for Basecamp to do and where does Basecamp kind of scratch their itch? And what, what we discovered through doing this uh, these interrogations that I told you about earlier, right, was that the problem that Basecamp solves isn't actually with the editing of the, of the files. It's not like, I don't know how to, we can both edit this thing. The problem is, how do we all stay on the same page about like what's going on with the work? So it's more about the communication about the work than the actual changing what's in the Photoshop file or changing what's in the contract. It's more like, hey, I updated the contract and does anybody else need to look at this before we give it to the client? That type of conversation, where does that happen? In a Slack channel, in the hallway, at the next meeting? And when that conversation happens and somebody else wasn't there, how do they know, how do they get informed that that conversation happened, right? So Basecamp is really about closing the communication loop so that things stop getting dropped and people stop having like, oh, well, I thought you were going to do that. No, I thought you were going to do it. Or I never heard that or that kind of a thing, right? So when we realize that Basecamp is all about the communication piece, then it's like, okay, we don't need to go there, right? So then maybe somebody says, well, do you compete with Slack? Well, what is Slack good for? Slack is good when you have a lot of people who are can't be in the same room all the time and you feel like there's not enough communication between people, right? So it's like, I want to laterally connect everybody, right? So now I've got more communication going. Now that may be good, but a lot of the people who come to us to buy Basecamp, they say, my problem is I have too much communication, you know? I got like, I'm drowning in email and everybody's writing a different thing in the Slack, Yeah. right? Yeah. How do I actually track the stuff that matters so that stuff doesn't get dropped? Slack doesn't help you with that. You know, communicating more is different than than being able to hold and be on the same page about the few things that really matter. So Basecamp actually, it's, it's very different than Slack because it's less about immediate real-time communication and it's more about asynchronous structured communication. So you're, you're going to have a, you might be able to instantly respond to something, but you're posting an asynchronous response on a list of comments underneath a to-do item. So whoever lands on that and gets notified about that has full context about a single train of thought about a single outstanding piece of work, right? Which is totally different than a plate of spaghetti of a million different things being discussed, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if you set up separate Slack channels, you're, you lose the structure really quickly as, yeah. as soon as the, the number of messages there grows, right? Yes. Because it goes off in multiple different directions. So this, uh, I took the time to go through the examples so that it's not too abstract, the stuff about positioning, you know? So and then it's mm -hmm. like, well, so what, how do we see kind of what we want to work on and what we don't want to work on, right? It's asynchronous. It's structure. It's giving you repeatability and like it's giving you a system to things instead of just ad hoc chaos, right? And it's more about the discussing about the work than doing the work. You know, so you're not uploading and downloading and changing the Photoshop file, right? You're looking at the the output of the Photoshop file. Somebody's rendering it and then saying, hey, any changes to this before I keep going? That kind of a thing. I love it. How often do you think products, companies, heads of product are this thoughtful about how they approach, you know, building their own software? Well, I think the real challenge is kind of how's the company set up? Because if you're a product manager in name, mm-hmm but you're a project manager in function, what choice do you have? Stuff is coming down at you from somebody else and you're just trying to get it all done. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're just kind of shuffling around resources to try and get everything built that somebody else is asking for. That is not a, you're not doing design. 
if you don't get to decide what the requirements are and what the priorities are. So a huge part of all of this is how does work actually get? Who's prioritizing the work? Who's budgeting the work? And who's shaping the work? Who's actually figuring out what the boundaries of the work are? What's important about this piece of work? Where can we stop on this piece of work? You know what I mean? Like those questions have to be answered by somebody. And if you, if stuff is just constantly getting stuffed down the channel, you're not making decisions about priority because you have to do it all. You don't get to make scoping decisions because it, there's the requirements are already there. You know, you don't have time. Even if you could make scoping decisions, you don't have time to step back and do the research or do the thinking to figure out what's actually important about this because then the pile is going to keep getting taller while you're trying to figure out how to do this one thing right. You know what I mean? This is the situation most people, most product people are in. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. I've seen, like, we did a, we sponsored a survey that Product Collective did, and like 300 product people, all in the, the B2B space, or mostly in the B2B space, almost all. And one interesting thing that we saw out of that is product managers felt their organizations valued more, you know, task orientation, getting shit done, yeah. like just than anything else. Right. And that they didn't see that changing. Right. And so I think that comes from the product leaders down right? How they structure the culture they put in place, what they value in their product teams. Yes. So anybody who is in a design role or a product role and says, I feel like I'm working on things that aren't important, or you know what I mean? Like I'm not working on the things I want to be working on. I think they need to look upward. This is what I did. I mean, I've always been, I've, I've had a good situation here at Basecamp, but there was a point earlier on in the career where I was fine with what was going on, but I felt like I wanted to have more influence, you know, like I wanted to, to participate strategically in what we're doing. And what I discovered was that being a better designer wasn't the answer. Being able to program also didn't help to get to that point. What you have to do is you have to look upward at who's making the decisions above me and what do they care about, you know, and then how do I start to communicate up to them? about what matters to them. And and for some reason, I hear a lot of designers saying, oh, I don't get a seat at the table and you know what I mean, this kind of thing. But I've never been to a design conference where everybody said, let's talk about how to figure out what our bosses care about, right? Yeah. This is the only way you're ever going to get at the table is if you're offering them something that they need. So that opens up a whole new field of questions, right? How do we define value? What makes the company money? What What are they struggling with? at an executive level, do they feel like they always know what to do? Do they feel confident about the, the projects that they're betting on? Like maybe not, you know? So there's a lot of, I think, potential to have more influence if you're a designer or you're a product person, but the, you, you have to start looking in a different direction and learning different skills and doing different work, I think, which I don't know if that's possible for people if they're already drowning in work. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to tell people, but you know what I mean? Like that's, that's where the problem is. Awesome. So we, we hinted, you hinted at a little bit before, but you talk a lot about product as functions, you know, which seems like a very engineering-oriented way to think about products. Where'd that idea come from? Well, the, the idea came from, well, I mean, I would say it snapped into place because of, of working with Bob Mesta. You know, this is like, he's very, very clear about this. But I, had, I, the, I think the reason it snapped was because I had also been thinking about it in different ways for a long time. You know, the thing is that if you are designing a product and your point of view is how do people react to the color blue versus the color red, it's not going to get you very far. But if you think about it in terms of cause and effect, what is the circumstance that somebody is in when they arrive here and what are they trying to do? And how much time do they have? And what are they nervous about? <laughs> you know, then you start to make decisions based on that are deterministic. You know what I mean? Like it's based on cause and effect. Thinking about this sort of driver's seat view moment by moment through time. And what's the thing that needs to happen to get me to the next step? That's the viewpoint that gets you to a better interaction. It gets you to a better product design. But it's kind of hard to talk about. 
So part of the game is like, how do we describe this and talk about this in a way that helps, you know? So what does a product do? Well, if you think of it in terms of cause and effect, then another word for that is it's a function. You put something in and you reliably get something out, right? And the thing I think about thinking of it as a function that is kind of, for me, very like, very tidy, <laughs> a very, it's a nice little compact thing, is because we too often evaluate the product in vitro, like we're just looking at the product. It's like we're in the lab, you know, and we're looking at the thing in the test tube and it's like, here's the buttons, here's the connections, here's the flow, here's the steps. But what we really need to look at to evaluate whether it's good or not is to put it in vivo, in the wild, right? And then we say, when does somebody approach the product and where, how do they touch it and what do they do with it and then what do they do when they walk away from it? So what's the context of a step-by-step-by-step-by-step real-life path where somebody grabs hold of this thing and does something with it? And it's only by judging whether it fits to the, the situation where they actually try to use it. That's the only time when you can actually judge if it's good or bad. All the time we look at a product and everybody in a room is having a product meeting and they're all talking about if they like it or not. You know what I mean? But yeah, they're just looking yeah. at, but they're just looking at the product. So your definition of success is circular. You're looking at the product to say is the product good or not. You want to take more of a evolutionary point of view which is like is the product fit or not? What's the fitness of the product to the ecological niche? What's the wild messy nature where this product sits in? And where's the beast that walks up to it? You know what I mean? So then, and this comes back to Alexander too. This is in notes on the synthesis of form too. He's, he totally spells this out. Like we need to look at the context it's in to judge if it's a fit or not. So for example, we talked about the schedule in Basecamp when we had the agenda view. Was the agenda view good or bad? I don't know. But when somebody needed to schedule a resource and they had to see an empty space in order to schedule the resource, the agenda view was not a fit. But when they needed to schedule a resource, the agenda view wasn't a fit. How do we frame, we needed a way to like frame that design problem, right? So this is where this piece that I wrote, Products or Functions, is, is just an attempt to give a framework for that. So we take the timeline of what the person did through the interrogation. So somebody wrote us a support email, I want a calendar. We got that whole story that we talked about earlier. And then we figure out, Where's the step in this that we want to, what's the situation that they were in that, because you, you, can't, you can't change what they're trying to do. That's the wild, right? But that's the starting point. That's the input to your product. I need to know when I can schedule the, a room with this client. So that's the input. Now, they were trying to use a wall calendar at the office to do that. So if you think of that as a function, what's the output of using that? Well, if you're, if you're sitting in the office, then the input is like, I'm at the office and the client calls, I go and use the wall calendar and I get my answer and it works fine, right? But if your context is a little bit different, I'm out of the office, the client calls, I drive 30 minutes to go to the calendar, then that doesn't work, right? So now we have a, we know the situation they're in, I'm out of the office, I need to schedule a client. We know the outcome that they want, I want to be able to see, identify where there's an empty spot or not so I can book it. But there's a gap in the middle. How do we enable that to happen? You know what I mean? So that gap, that's a real product requirement. That's a good specification for a product. It's not saying it's going to have this and it's going to have that and it's going to have this. It's actually the product is just a, is a whole. It's just an empty space. It's an undefined function. But you have an input and you have an output. So now you get to say... Let's test our ideas for fitness, mm -hmm. right? If we try different things, how well do they fit? And then out of all the things we could come up with, a full-blown calendar would work, but also this stripped-down dot grid calendar works. If they both work, but one of them is an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude cheaper to develop, and it still has fitness, then we've got a good solution, right? So I think thinking of a product as a function, it's actually more than that. It's thinking of the causality of what somebody's trying to do and embedding your solution in the problem, you know, and structuring it all in a way that you can actually reason about it and talk about fit. But this is an ongoing 
I didn't write this as like a, I didn't mean to write this as a solved thing. I meant to write it. There's a section of my website that says current areas of interest. <laughs> so, so this was actually like, look, I'm trying to figure this out. Like I'm trying to find a way to talk about this that isn't so long winded, you know, which clearly I'm not succeeding in doing, but like to get to a point where maybe there's a way to structure how we think about this. That's more profitable to the task. I like it. I, I like that approach. And maybe it's, you know, I have a background in engineering and computer science, right? Though I, I've done very little of that since my degree from Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. But there's something about the logical thought process behind that that I like a lot. That and appeals it to me. And it has to be logical. I think it's good if designers actually kind of, you know, a lot of times designers come in and they try to work on software. And what happens is some of them succeed and then some of them don't do very well. And it's because there's not really a good moment. I think there should be a clear moment for, for designers where they kind of get hit in the face with the reality of cause and effect. Like, if you're not willing to think through this in terms of, like, what actually works and you want to focus on what you like and what's delightful, you got to go somewhere else. You know what I mean? Because the work of a designer, there is a layer of aesthetics and experience and, and design and all and like I mean stylistic design there is all that and that is valuable but somebody has to do the job of figuring out like what's the form of the interaction and like how's this thing what's the yeah, without the, that fitness you know the beauty is kind of going to be lost exactly so I feel like there isn't really a clear definition of that role actually you know of like if you're a designer you're figuring out how an interface should be that you should be really deeply understanding the situation people are in and thinking about cause and effect. That's something that I think would be a good filtering moment where people who, who don't like thinking like that, they concentrate their skills on applying the paint layer, which is a valuable and important thing. And then the people who aren't as good, like I'm not as good at the paint layer, those people then they can identify with, oh, but I'm better at this thing. I can think through the functionality of the situation and what this has to do for somebody in a specific context. And then what they're doing looks more like a, like a breadboard for an electrical engineer. You know, it's like, what are the components and what's the wiring? And I don't know exactly how the, where the toggle and the, with the different components, I don't know exactly how they're going to show up in the arrangement in the industrial design, you know, when there's a chassis on it. And, yep. But I do know that the, the switch has to have a wire that goes to the light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's going to be a switch and there's going to be a light bulb, right? Like that level of thinking. Because if you don't have it, then it's not fit. It yeah. doesn't matter if the light bulb's that, gorgeous. That's where most of the fit comes from if you're working on the, the types of problems that a lot of us work on. Now, if you're making an art project or you're working for a fashion house, you know what I mean? Maybe the the paint layer is actually where more, much more of the value is. So it's not a universal truth, but... For most of the things that I think people are getting paid to build software for, the fit and function layer is where the work is. Awesome. So trends, product management, future, what do you think? What trends do you see affecting the craft? The biggest trend I see right now is growing frustration with what's called agile. Oh, we could spend another hour on that. Whatever people think of when they say agile, scrum, lean, you name it, these are like small boxes that are not serving people well today. And there's a lot of religious fervor attached to these topics. If you're agile and you believe in agile, then you're like, well, anything that's not this is not the way. <laughs> and if you're not that, I mean, it's difficult to not be that because there's nothing really else out there on the table, right? And that has a name. <laughs> and everybody's in such a stupid hurry. Everybody's like rushing to, I don't know, do what, but for some reason, everybody's running around like crazy in a big hurry. So nobody's taking the time to think. So it's like, well, what do we need to do? We need to be agile. And then what does it mean? Do whatever we were doing, but faster or do it with less planning, which is also stupid. <laughs> you know, the, the yeah, and product managers get pulled into being dev managers, right? Yeah, and spend a lot of their exactly. time in like scrum meetings. Yeah. And which is what slicing work that nobody carefully thought about into small pieces so that you can eat shit faster. Like it's, it, there's no, it doesn't make any sense. So I think that frustration with this is a trend. And what I hope, what would be a nice trend to see would be a little bit of a return to what is, what the agile people disparagingly call upfront design. Because the thing is that the baby got thrown out with the bathwater when agile took off. 
which is that in the 90s, there was this crazy, like, heavy, heavy, early upfront design that happened where people, like, planned out the whole architecture of the thing before they even prototyped anything, right? And clearly that's not good. But we've gone the other way now, where people are basically wandering, saying iteration will teach us, which is not true. Iteration only teaches you if you have a metric for when am I warmer and when am I colder. You have to have a clearly defined sense of what north is, and most people don't have that. So they're doing iteration after iteration, but they don't know where they're going. So actually, one of the things that we do here at Basecamp is we never budget work into a cycle unless we've already done some shaping of the work to define like what's the concept, why is it valuable, what are the edges of it, you know what I mean, like the basic solution, like all, we actually do that work as upfront design before we ever slot something mm-hmm. into our cycles. And that upfront design work is everything. That's like really, really important. Otherwise, you're just giving people an unknown and a deadline which is asking for trouble, <laughs> you know? So that, that would be a trend that would be nice to see, a little bit more upfront design work and a little less um, running around in circles. So let's talk a little bit about you. You know, what's, what's your favorite software product and why is it your favorite? Probably at the moment, my favorite is Notability on the iPad. Okay. I love being able to, I've got, so I've got the iPad Pro with the Apple Pencil, which is a beautiful thing. I mean, it's like, it's such a level above previous touch stylus things, you know, and it's just fantastic. And so I, I, I do like all sketching, playing with ideas, thinking things through, writing and notability. I just love it. I just love it. It's like one of those things where if I pull out the iPad and I'm sketching in notability, like one of the things you can do is it's so simple, but you can write something and then you can lasso it and move it. So like paper and pen plus lasso is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or highlight anything and, and everything in it is, is a vector. So you can just select something and change the color, you know, and it's just like for as a thinking tool, as like a creative thinking tool, it's just awesome. So, Ryan, we talked about a lot today, a lot of great stuff. In fact, there's a lot of stuff we could follow on and talk and maybe dig into that, you know, how agile and product should work together mm-hmm. sometime. Maybe that's a, a podcast for, mm-hmm. you know, six months from now. Sure. But um Talking about, you know, covering what we've talked about already, you know, if you had to impart, take this down, mention your words of wisdom, what would you give? What would you tell others in product leadership? I would boil it down to no, no debt. So get rid of the backlog. Try to get to a place where you're prioritizing what you're doing instead of just drowning in what you're doing. And think about causality. Think about cause and effect and time. And... Um, get out of the good bad and get into thinking about fitness to situations. I think those would be three things that would make a really big difference if you could do that. I think those are awesome. And so one final question I love to ask. Three words to describe yourself. <sighs> Too many words. That's a good one. Let's try that. <laughs> Too <laughs> a lot of blah blah blah. <laughs> Humble. Humble might be one of them. <laughs> Well, thank you, Ryan. This was great. I enjoyed it. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's been great. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.